0: Amazing, the amount of changes. I said, wow, I, I'll never get bored in this profession <laughs> because clinical medicine is always changing. So you, you have to do something to not just, because your textbooks are going to be out of date almost the day you buy them.
1: Welcome, welcome everybody to the Emergency Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between clinicians and facilities, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I am an emergency medicine PA who's been in the business for 20 years, and I'm very excited to be bringing you this podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome to our first podcast, in a series of what we hope is gonna be entertaining and above all informative. This podcast, Emergency Medicine, NP and PA Workforce. And to kick this off, we are very uh, fortunate to have a special guest, uh, Miss Nicolette mozinski Physician Assistant. She is the APP Postgraduate Program Director for U.S. Acute Care Solutions in Erie, Pennsylvania. Nicolette, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Omar.
1: So uh, before we get into the meat of our content for this episode, could you just uh, please tell us just a brief history of how you came to be EM leader in your current position, and then we'll talk about more things uh, about what you do.
0: Absolutely. I started my career as a PA student at Gannon University, and there really supplied my foundation as a physician assistant found on clinical rotations, a love for emergency medicine, you know, kept, kept wanting more and was really fortunate to begin my career at the Cleveland Clinic, where I did not do actually a postgraduate program, but did have a good new hire foundation program, I would say, um, and was super fortunate to be surrounded by some amazing PA leaders, both physician, fellow PAs, NPs, and continued my career there, um, then returned actually to Erie, Pennsylvania, and served as a full-time faculty member for a couple of years at Gannon University, which is where I was able to enrich my love of emergency medicine, but also PA education, and then went to full-time again um, in, at St. Vincent Hospital through U.S. Acute Care Solutions, and as a full-time clinician, I was given a tremendous opportunity about five years ago where they said, Hey, we'd like to start a postgraduate program. You have the tools, you have our support. What do you think? Um, and I took that opportunity and with tremendous support, ran with it and was able to start the foundation of the postgraduate emergency medicine program through US Acute Care Solutions at St. Vincent. And you know, a little selfishly meld my interest in emergency medicine and PA education, but I've also found a tremendous opportunity to be able to be a mentor, um, a fellow clinician, you know, kind of a a PA leader on a national level. And it's, there's nothing better than seeing your students start to emerge as fellow leaders and to um, find their wings. Um, I had a a post-grad who recently he graduated or completed our program two years ago, and he just ran his own clinical skills lab, um, cadaver-based. And to see him do that and to see him spread his wings was just, oh, that's there's cool. nothing better than to see that that level of um, education continue on.
1: Well, that's great. Thank you for that uh, brief background that, that helps to set the tone for what makes you a special guest to me that I want to share to the workforce, and and not just to the workforce, our listening audience, uh, including uh, recruiters in the workforce, employers, so a, a wide uh, array of of other uh, listeners. So, in, in in today's episode, I want to cover two big kind of tents of ideas and, and issues. One is developing emergency medicine. Uh, knowledge and skills for PAs and NPs, and the other one is how should NPs and PAs be used in the emergency department. So let's let's dive into the first one. So when you first went to work at St. Vic- Vincent's in Erie, Pennsylvania, did you see something or did you experience something that prompted you to consider the need for more training for NPs and PAs?
0: Yeah, I think I think one trend that we've seen on a national level with more and more urgent cares and med expresses. That's pulling our low acuity out of our emergency departments, which kudos to them. Thank you to them for doing that, right? It's, it's better use of resources, I think. But you're seeing elimination of fast tracks where you traditionally saw PAs and NPs running these fast tracks. Well, there aren't any more fast tracks and our acuity is increasing. Our volumes are not decreasing, but people are sicker, especially following COVID, you know, with lack of um, preventative medicine on a regular basis, we're seeing a lot of increased acuity. And so with that increased acuity comes an increased demand for our PAs and NPs to be able to have the skills to take care of those really sick patients. And I think that while, you know, I actually do work at a residency site um, where we have EM residents, which I'm so fortunate to have them as part of our team. But there's still a need for us as PAs and NPs to be able to have the skills to practice um, higher acuity medicine.
1: Hmm, I see. So your your experience was that low acuity, fast track, traditional type of patients got filtered out with the evolution, the development of of these urgent cares. And and this process kind of self-selected, nature selected for keeping the more acuity concentrated spectrum in the ED. So now, all of a sudden, uh, uh, PAs and NPs are having to see a higher proportion of that now. Okay, that, that makes sense. You know, we would love that anybody that goes to work could have the same level of experience and training that you do. But we know the reality of, of it is we just don't come out of uh, PA school like that. I was the president uh, the, of, of, of my class uh, program, and uh, there were two, two kind of expressions, you know, unofficial class mottos. One was know now, understand later, meaning know the information, pass the test, we'll understand it later because we were moving too fast. It was like drinking from a fire hose. And then the other one was we couldn't wait to get out of PA school, like, oh good Lord, please let us get out. We we want to get out. And then when we got out, we said, Why did you let us out? <laughs> we we don't know enough yet. Take us back. So uh keep keeping that in mind. There's a wide spectrum, and I've said this. Throughout my 20-year history uh, as a PA, residents, physicians, they have a pretty uniform track in emergency medicine. There might be some variability in experience and even skills, but that variability is is, is narrow because there's uniformity to their EM training. As you know, not so uh, with PA and NPs. There's a wide variability. So I'm curious, you know, site to site, you're going to see differences at your site briefly describe to me what's the spectrum of experience look like in terms of junior, mid-grade, senior experience. What's that look like at your site?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you you bring it up in reference to number of years, you know, because we have that variety. We have our 20-year season provider, um, and then we may have someone who has maybe two years of experience, or we do have a couple that are, you know, immediately following our postgraduate program. Who have been fortunate, we've been fortunate to keep them and they, they've stayed with us. That makes a difference, the number of years, but also what makes a difference is that interest, right? You have to, as a PA or NP, I think that there also has to be that interest in higher acuity or that advanced scope of practice. And so I find that that almost makes the bigger difference. I've had a 20-year season clinician that I've worked with. I have, you know, about 14 years of clinical experience behind me, and we'll work side by side, and maybe they just don't have that higher acuity interest. I'm okay with that. You know, that's kind of their prerogative, but I have found, you know, that the need to step up. So our site does range. We have some that have a significant interest in advanced scope of practice, and then others that don't. The ones that do tend to really help the department flow. They almost act as a manager of the department, right, in the sense that we're able to see everything, really assist with everything from maybe helping start an IV to aiding in a critical patient or completely independently running a stroke. All those are different needs. And as an APP or NP or PA, you know, helping to have that, that interest to serve wherever you're needed. It is what is necessary to be most effective. We have some clinicians in our department that are more effective, and some that maybe aren't. And you know that's glaringly obvious. But I think that what makes the difference is not necessarily the number of years, but the interest and the the willing to invest themselves in that advanced scope. Because as you mentioned, PA school there isn't an EM focus, right? There's no time for it. Um, prepping for the boards, I give. PA educators, all the credit in the world. It's a huge task, huge undertaking. So, you know, following graduation, you choose. You can, you can acquire, I think, the needed education, the needed experience without a postgrad program. I do think it requires that heightened level of self-dedication, self-motivation, and more time. Whereas in a postgraduate program, we can really condense that experience into a year or year
1: and a half. Um, it's interesting that you said that you, you put it in different terms. This is what I think is great and valuable about these conversations. So what I heard from you is, hey, Omar, you talked about this in years of experience, but I'm going to talk to you in different uh, dimensions. Motivation, it sounds like you described discipline. And, and I 100% agree with that because over the years as I've taken students or tried to hire new junior PAs and said, you're going to be our, our junior PA MP for the year that we're going to take on. I've told them, listen, I, I can help fill your mind with information, but I cannot fill your heart and your belly with motivation. And I, and I cannot impart on you the self-discipline that's going to be required of you to impose on yourself, to read, to learn, to stick to processes. So that's very interesting that, that you put it in that because it, uh, I used to put it in, in different terms and it sounds like we had a similar experience. Before we get a little bit to detail uh, about a fellowship, I want to set up that with the following. So we we already talked about there's no way that there can be a heavy-duty EM focus in PA training. So there's going to be this gap. There's going to be this gap from what we know immediately graduating a PA program versus the demands of the modern ED. Share with us top three, maybe uh, briefly, top five things that you notice that are pretty consistent that you see when we get uh, brand new grad PAs or MPs out of their primary education and, and, and should they end up in EM, what are the top three or top five common knowledge set issues or skills
0: that I see? So number one is um, difficulty with commitment. So they can develop that differential. They can develop a plan, but they really have a hard time committing to it. That confidence of, okay, I, I can commit to this. And what's difficult about that, particularly in the emergency medicine setting, is the large variety of cases that we see. So I can increase their commitment, you know, to a chest pain workup, but the next patient's going to be an apy. The next patient's going to be a CHF workup. Um, and so having that, you know, consistency of dedication is really challenging. I typically think their baseline procedural skills are okay, but they usually lack exposure in advanced procedures, which I'm always more than willing to work with. I don't expect them to have proficiency with central lines, chest tubes, intubations coming out. That's my job. I can work with that. Usually, laceration repair is okay. Depends on maybe their background. I think laboratory and diagnostic interpretation is mediocre coming out, but again, where I guess I would expect it to be, but not enough to be able to be proficient in the department. Um, especially, you know, at night, we're reading our own plain films for our own wet reads. And to have that level to be able to efficiently read a chest x-ray and commit to it, right, that, that's challenging. So that would be my number two. The third is ability to multitask and manage multiple patients at one time is something that I'm not seeing regularly um, coming out of PA school. They're not able to manage really any more than two patients successfully at one time. It's pretty rare to see that, I think.
1: That's good. I, I would agree with you. I think that's pretty universal across the board. And I think the common factor simply is some of the things we already stated. There's only so much that you can teach in a finite amount of time in PA school And then after that, you just got to get to the business of seeing patients. That goes to your comment about seeing multiple patients at one time. I I usually tell new grads who are looking uh, for a job, if, if I can't take them on as an individual project, I tell them, listen, go work family practice, go work somewhere, just so you get used to seeing large volumes of patients and you get used to doing multiple things at once. Just do that for a while. So agreed with all of that. Let's pivot from there to... I think that there isn't a universal, clear, shared understanding among our audience of w- the difference, say, between a postgraduate program and, say, in a postgraduate academic uh, program conferring an advanced degree, a, a doctorate in, in emergency medicine. Uh, you know, our, our goal at, at the podcast isn't necessarily to, say, better or worse. But to highlight differences and let the audience decide. But but I do think it bears some discussion, uh, for clarity's sake. So can you talk about that? Uh, uh, surely you're 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 an expert at that. You're a director of, of of a fellowship program. So yeah, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, I think I think that both both tracks have their their pluses, right? Um, have their their goals, their clinical outcomes, learning objectives. I think postgraduate education is, as its target, as its focus, is to prepare you for a specialty field of medicine, clinically. While many of us, as program directors, we try and sprinkle in leadership, management, education, some highlights here and there, it's not our focus. Our focus is to prepare you to be a successful, happy, efficient, clinician in our field of specialty, whether it be burn care or um, ICU or emergency medicine for us or nephrology, that's our focus is to have you be a proficient, efficient, happy. I I focus on that happy because I want them, I think that's what we see sometimes when clinicians don't do a post-grad program is they just get burned out um, because it's really tough. But we want them to be able to finish the program and be a, a happy successful clinician. These doctorate of science programs have much more focus, so an increased level of focus on leadership, management, helping to equip maybe for specifically a leadership role in a PA field. There seems to be less focus on actual proficiency of clinical practice, increased level, maybe on research. While in postgraduate education, we incorporate some leadership. We incorporate some research. We incorporate some QI. Our focus is clinical. Um, With these doctorate of medical science, I think it's more of a preparation on the management leadership front.
1: So I think uh, the takeaway here, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is the the audience should just understand what is the primary objective of each postgraduate experience if if it's a fellowship that we're talking about the focus is clinical if we're talking about the objective of a, of an academic postgraduate experience it's not clinical but it's other valuable things like leadership research as long as everybody understands on uh, um, on the front end what is the objective then
0: we should have a clear understanding does that does that sound about right yes um one of one of our one of our focus, you know, when I I say hey, if you want to be really clear cut, what am I trying to prep you to do? To practice as an experienced provider in the department and then I do try and prep them for the CAQ, which is the specialty exam for EM. And those are if you you know, put everything else aside, that's what we're trying to do here. I think if you are someone who is trying to maybe be the director of APPs for a large network, I would think the doctorate of medical science might be a really good, helpful tool for you in gaining those skills to achieve those goals.
1: Yep. So it just sounds like the, the consumer of either just has to understand, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. I select this. Hey, this is what I'm looking for. I select that. And I'm sure in our vast number of, uh, uh, Clinicians, there's folks that elect both. They'll do one at one point and maybe do the other at at another point. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that uh, because I think, and and we're going to get, we're going to hit this topic on other episodes. When I talk about informing uh, with this podcast is informing not only our own workforce, where I don't think this is completely widely understood, but also recruiters, potential employers, and you know who else? Supervising physicians. Who may just see a set of initials and just assume, "Hey, uh, you did a fellowship and cl- good. I need you to help me co-author a research paper." whoa, whoa, whoa that's not what I did. Uh, Ms. Mazinski taught me how to crack a chest. <laughs> if you need me to crack a chest, that's what I can do. Or vice versa. Hey, I see th- these initials. I need you to come over here and crack a chest. No, 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 no. That's that's not what it's not what this program taught me. So I just think uh, this is important to inform all. W- wouldn't you agree?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, you know what. One of the more difficult things that I, I address with my postgrads is how do you prepare your supervising so that they understand, so that they know, and, you know, hopefully they listen to something like this, but um, if they don't, how do you handle that conversation?
1: Awesome. To wrap up this first tent of topic, this developing EM, APP, knowledge and skills, I'd like to, to briefly touch on the following. So I think we could be realistic. There's maybe not enough fellowships out there for interested uh, customers. As much as I would like to tell everybody uh, listening, please move to Erie, Pennsylvania and, and, and uh, compete for this uh, position so that you could be trained by Nicolette, this awesome clinician. There's going to be times where things are just not feasible. Uh, you know, we're, we're a wide country. We're spread apart. So. In the instances where it, it just isn't feasible for somebody either within the time left in their career or, or, or maybe just not right now, we know there's a lot of CME out there. We know it's not cheap. We know not everybody can make it to the same conference. Some conferences they can make it to. So briefly talk to what you would advise somebody who says, uh, Ms. Mazinski, I just, there's no fellowship experience anywhere near me probably not going to happen in the next five years because of my set of circumstances in life. What would you recommend for me to plus up my skills clinically uh, as best as I can, whether it's conferences, other didactic experiences, anything out there?
0: There's a couple ways you need to go about it. And I always say, write it down, right? Make sure that you have like an actual list in front of you. I'm putting myself in the mental image of they don't have good leadership support maybe from overhead, you know, they're at, um, and sometimes those are the areas where you really need the skill set, right? You're at a rural ER, maybe there's not tremendous leadership support. So first off, um, a program like EM Bootcamp, tremendous in a relatively short period of time going through a wide range of high yield topics. So there's your didactic, right? Right. Um, that there's a good springboard for your didactic. then if you're a podcast person, not to put a plug out, but I'm a huge MRAP fan. Um, Yeah, Yeah. love MRAP. um, And I think that's a really good way to stay abreast of changing topics, things that are dynamic in, you know, 13 years. I'm sure Omar, you could commiserate with me on this one. Amazing the amount of changes. I said, wow, i I'll never get bored in this profession (laughs) because clinical medicine is always changing. So you you have to do something to not just because your textbooks are going to be out of date almost the day you buy them. So like an EM boot camp, then have something that's like a running level of interest like EM, MRAP or a podcast to keep you abreast. Um, Then you need something hands on. So look for a skills lab. Or you can go in something cadaver-based and do some skills. Um, Those are, I think, the three things that I would do. But then personalize it. So at the beginning, find your top three SMART goals. So what do I want to do? How do I want to get there? In amount of time, do I want to get there? So maybe it's, you know, I always say, you know, don't always just focus on the procedures hey, I want to evaluate three chest pains a week and do it well. Like I want to build my autonomy on that. That's a goal. You want to do it in a matter of three months. I'm going to check back in in three months, see how my EKG interpretation is, see how I'm doing with activating the cath lab. How am I doing that on a relatively autonomous front? So that might be one of your goals. Maybe another one is more procedural-based. I want to increase my speed with laceration repair. You know, I, I want to make sure that I'm doing all my lacerations and I have them disposed in an hour. You know, obviously there's some that may fall out of that, that box, but maybe that's another one of your goals. Set a timeline when you want to have that completed. And then at that three-month mark, sit down, look at that list, see where you are, see what needs to stay on the list, and then maybe what needs to be added or what can go. You have to personalize it. And I know that like is very intentional, but that's what's required. If if you don't have someone like me, you know, to be, hey, here's where we are. Here's where we need to go. You can do all the courses in the world. And I hate, I, oh, it's terrible seeing people spend so much money on a skills lab. They get home. Yeah,
1: same here. They
0: don't use any of the skills, right? That really stinks. Yep. They're really expensive. <laughs> and so- before you even go to that skills lab, all right, here's, I know what I'm going to cover. Look at the outline. How are you going to use it at home? And, you know, make sure that you're your own, you know, kind of best advocate, advocate for yourself and be a critic for yourself um, to get obtain those goals.
1: I really appreciate this response that you gave, because I think there are so many consumers of what you just said. Everybody from a brand new grad, mm-hmm. hey, what's something that I can do? but even what I would call post-post brand new grad in that junior mid-range experience, I think there's mid-rangers that could really benefit from the advice you just gave if they, if they want to improve or develop and they, they don't have a post-grad experience near them. And I think that employers and supervising docs can benefit from what you just said because it helped. what you just said helps to uh, develop at least a little bit of a framework on how to get clinician from point A to point B to point C and D. And I think sometimes that alone is the battle. Mm-hmm. I think that someone's professional development, if you're a PA or NP and nurse practitioner, if there isn't already a disciplined program in place. is truly like walking through a forest. You can't navigate by the stars and you have no compass and you mm-hmm. just don't know where, where I am. So... Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, IV Clinicians. Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Ivy, And I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EM, NPs, and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EM, NP, and PA are matched with the right ED, then emergency physicians and EM, NPs, and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle the modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine workforce, where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io, and when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, let's get back to the show. That was very valuable. Let's let's move on to the second tent of ideas, and the second one was how APPs are used in the emergency department. As we know, there's been a little bit of competing ideas uh, between, uh, say, uh, SEMPA, Society of Emergency Medicine, PAs, and ASAP, American College of Emergency Physicians. Uh, I'll continue to say that one of the objectives of this podcast is to inform and to maximize harmony between all players uh, in this. Because the reality of it is, we work side by side every day, every shift, 24 hours, 365, we work side by side. My experience is that for the most part, the relationship is collegial, but I've worked in different parts of the country where I know that may not necessarily be the same or to the same degree. Tell me what your experience at your site and what your what your instinct is about the working relationship between PAs and P's. And supervising physicians throughout the country in emergency departments.
0: Oh, yeah. It's, um, (laughs) you know, it has good days and bad days, I think. But ultimately, I agree. I have had a really positive experience personally. But then you hear these rumblings, right? And you're like, well, if I hear it more than one time, there must be something going on. (laughs) I personally think it's all about transparency. Having those awkward conversations like we're doing right now, right? But keeping people informed. I became a PA to work collaboratively. I love collaboration with my attendings and working and building each other up and helping each other. That's why I became a PA. And I think that's why most of us did. You know, there's always gonna be a couple bad eggs in the batch that maybe based on bad behavior, lack of experience, you know, have... Created that sour taste. I have taken it as a personal mission and hope that my postgrads fight that bad egg with a really good one um, and that positive experience. And I think that's the only way we get through this is by informing and shining positive experiences, shining, you know, bringing ourselves to an increased level of experience, increased level of education, so that we are equipped to practice with an advanced scope. No one should be practicing with an advanced scope if they don't have the skills to do so. But if you are equipping yourself and you are challenging yourself and you're working in a safe clinical environment, you can. Um, And you should be encouraged to do so. We need to, especially in our younger generation of EM physicians, provide as much education as we can to them on how they can best work with PA and NP colleagues. I have had very upfront conversations with some of our residents and I've said, "Hey, you're going to at some point in your career work with a PA or NP. So why not learn how to do so in the best way possible now?" And that's usually kind of my springboard because that's a hard thing to say no, I won't <laughs> because they will. Right. And I I just say, "What what can we do to make this experience the best that it can be? I want to make your job easier. You want to make my job easier. And ultimately we're all here to serve patients and make their patient care experience the best that it can be. So we're all trying to achieve the same goal. What can we do to work together? But I think that education is huge because as you mentioned, a lot of times our supervising physicians, they don't have any idea our curriculum going in.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. So, you know, in, in 20 years of, of practice, and we've talked about this before, there's a, a wider variability amongst EMPAs and MPs versus EM physicians because of the uniformity of their residency that that, that, that we don't have. So there's going to be more wide variability. And, and you talked about it a little bit in your previous comments. And, and I agree with you that, you know, there's, you know, a brand new grads, post-brand post new grads, there's mid-range experience and senior uh, range experience. And I agree with you on a previous comment, just because you have senior years of experience, doesn't necessarily mean XYZ. Your your motivation could have depleted, or you could have just chosen to stop developing yourself past a certain Mm -hmm. point. But having said that, it's my opinion, just my opinion, that there are a certain set of patients that uh, some EMPAs and NPs can, in the ED, uh, with the supervising doc in the department, they can autonomously manage the patient, and safely disposition uh, the patient with with good outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, Not every patient, not every case, and not every APP, but I do think that there's a fair number. What's what's your take on that?
0: Absolutely. I would be speaking out of turn if I said that wasn't the case, because on an average clinical shift for me personally, I may discuss one patient um, with my attending physician. When I talk about collaborative practice, it's not them seeing all of my patients, <laughs> um, it's being there, bouncing ideas off each other, knowing it's kind of that unknown support, right, that exists. But I think autonomous practice is essential and it's necessary for our current healthcare system. You know, as I mentioned, that's one of the things I see that's an area of deficit, right, in our our, our PA students that are new graduates. So they don't have kind of that ability to be autonomous, nor should they right away. But how do we get them there? Um, How do they get themselves there if they don't have that infrastructure and support? But yeah, it's essential that PAs and NPs have some level of autonomy, both in working up cases and disposition. Um, I think that almost most cases can be autonomously, you know, successfully managed I know through U.S. Acute Care Solutions, um, we've published kind of a framework of guidelines um, that we work under of, hey, these individuals, giving you an example, a pregnancy of unknown origin, really high risk case. Um, so that, that's a specific case where if I have a, a patient who we know is pregnant, the location of the pregnancy is unknown due to the high nature of the risk and liability on that case, I involve an attending physician. But for the most part, those rules and regulations are somewhat flexible, and they're to be used as a guideline. Sometimes it's even just a mental double check of, okay, am I checking everything on this? Do I need to discuss it with someone else?
1: No, that's great. Again, I've been practicing for 20 years. I I, I did earn uh, my, my CAQ However, I am not shy at all. I tell students, junior uh, PAs, MPs, I'm not shy at all about telling them, ask your supervising physician, mm-hmm. even if you just want to bounce an idea. Most of the time, I think uh, if, if I talk to my supervising doc, my opening line is, hey, tell me if you disagree with me. And then I just go down the list because I want, I want the power of veto. Mm-hmm. I want someone to say, no, mm-hmm. stop, that's wrong. Or yeah. "I did, you didn't say something that I should have heard. So as you said, sometimes you're collaborating. My last shift about, oh, about a week ago, uh, we were backed up. I was seeing everybody out of triage in the waiting room, and th- there had been people that had been waiting. So long story short, I picked up, and, I, and somebody asked me, and then at, at, to add to it, a buddy of mine said, hey, would you mind taking my PE student uh, just for a shift? She's short of hours, and it's a little bit overwhelming sometimes. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So we get in, and my first eight patients are horribly sick. <laughs> One of which I was called was just a cough and cold, maybe a minor uh, COVID. Her systolic was in, in the 70s, and she had all these other comorbidities. And at the same time, they're pulling me into the next triage room. There's a 19-year-old who's grabbing his groin, he's severe pain. And this is all in triage. And I you know, take a look and examine him, and I could appreciate right before me, he's tors. He has a, a mm-hmm. testicular torsion. So, you know, I did a procedure to detour some and send an time. and I'm just overwhelmed. And I go to my supervising doc who I've known for years. And I said, hey, I, I need your help. Can you just please take mm-hmm. uh, the the woman with the dropping pressures off my hands? Because she needs my eyes on her all the time. And I do not have that bandwidth. Mm-hmm. I'm not shy about saying I don't have a bandwidth or something. Yep. He said, yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah, you got like four critical care patients. Yep. So uh, I agree with you that... Uh, Many times we're just collaborating and bouncing ideas off. But I I also personally don't mind telling anybody. I don't mind saying, hey, I'm in trouble. I need help. help. Bail me out or get very, very involved with me on this case. You'd already uh, mentioned about talking to your young residents and how to interact with uh, APPs because it's going to happen anyway. What is your sense? I know I have my opinion. Um, do you think that the average APP is shy about asking their supervising physician for help on challenging cases?
0: I think that sometimes the younger ones are. They see it as an as them admitting incompetence, um, and it's not.
1: Yeah, or weakness. <laughs>
0: and, you know, I always say being a PA is one of the most humbling professions in the world, and that's okay. <laughs> I think the more experienced you are, the more that you realize it's okay to ask. Um, I actually had a conversation with one of my current postgrads the other day, and she said, you know, Nicolette, the the area I've grown the most is identification of the things that I now know I don't know. And how powerful of a tool that is. Right. The areas that I know I'm uncomfortable with this. I know that I need help with this. But sometimes as a new provider, they just don't know what they don't know. <laughs> um sure. that area. And so yeah, by I was one of them, you know, you mentioned, hey, tell me if I'm if I'm wrong. That's kind of how you direct it. I find sometimes it's tell me if I'm not thinking of something. Like, is there that differential that just hasn't popped into my head that you think of just as a fresh set of eyes? One of my attendees, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's a wonderful, wonderful physician. He always says, well, Nicolette, if I haven't, if you haven't thought of it, there's no way I'm going to think of it. (laughs) And it's very sweet of him. Um, But, you know, and that's the type of respect we have for each other, though, that collaboration. And that does take time to develop. I think one of the things we do in our post-grad program is I actually have them for the first at least six months, they have to talk to the doc about every case One of the reasons I do that is just to relationship build and to, you know, help. I know my, you know, physician colleagues by the end, they're like, man, I love working with the postgrads because they work so well with them. But that's one of those reasons, you know, like you mentioned, Omar, is to to try and fight that hesitation to ask for assistance or ask questions or to admit, hey, I'm in over my head. (laughs) Please help. Because we've all been there.
1: Yeah, um, so that's great. That that helps springboard us to my last question. You, you know, uh, I've mentioned again before a uh, number of object- objectives for this uh, podcast. Chief of all to inform, inform all parties. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of, of our interview today, emergency medicine is just changing so much. There's a few things that I think all parties can agree on whether or not there's debate about other things. Some of those few things are, there's not enough uh, physicians, residency trained, board certified, EM docs to see everybody. There's probably not enough EM, well-trained PAs and NPs to help them see everybody. But there's been a proliferation of PA schools and NP schools. And one of the dynamics that I've seen over my 20-year career, more so in, in the latter half, is that there's an attempt to meet the demand in terms of raw numbers versus experience. And you mentioned this before when I, we were talking about years of experience. So if there's a deficit of number of clinicians at one site, well, let's fill that deficit number with other number of PAs or MPs, but maybe we didn't look closely into the experience that we're matching. So what I've seen develop in the workforce is a mismatch We put folks just to fill a hole on the schedule, but we may not be examining closely what the level of experience is. It could be that in some cases all parties are aware that there's a mismatch, but they still have to fill the hole. But I I think by and large, the issue is that there's not a close examination of matching experience with the with the department need. I think you would agree every department is different and every department has unique needs. For example, EDA may have a dedicated fast track either location or provider, and they might have a mid uh, acuity range. And, and then the same for a high acuity range. And it could be that for the next six months, they're looking for two fast track PA NPs, one mid range uh, acuity NP or PA, and one uh, critical uh, care or high acuity. And it could be that there's another ED down the road in a rural area and, and it's remote and they just need one that can do all. There, there's just no telling. Do you see such a mismatch as I've described in, in any degree, a little bit, mid-range, a lot?
0: Yeah, 100%. It's a disservice to the patients, the department, and to the clinician because they're not going to be happy if the expectation is different than what they're able to do. No one's going to be happy in that situation. So I I do think transparency of what's going to be the expectation of this role and in what amount of time, like, what is my, what does my learning curve need to be in order to be successful here? You know, I've worked with clinicians and I'm like, man, you're a great person. (laughs) Um, You know, I really like you as a person. However, I'm not sure this is a good fit.
1: Do you think there's a great understanding among employers and recruiters, let's say, for example, in this question, the employer is not a PA or an NP. Uh, they're not in the employer umbrella. You know, I was for 19 of my 20 years, just luck. But a non-PA or NP involved in the uh, employer team or recruiting team, do you think that there's great understanding across the board of the capabilities of their candidates or that there's risk that they see PA, NP, You worked at EDX in Ohio. Yeah, you're a great fit. What do you think about about their understanding?
0: Yeah, they don't have a clinical background. There is no understanding, I don't think. Um, You know, we try and use tools to increase that understanding, such as having, you know, you and I both sat for the CAQ. I think that is a, hey, there is not even just that we passed the test, right? It's a, we were invested to go that route, and I think that investment shows an increased level of skill. But I'm not sure that a recruitment team knows to look for that. I don't think it's abundantly discussed or advertised to know that here's some things you know that you can look for, and then also that mismatch that you mentioned. There's just not enough. <laughs> I know. To be honest, I took the CAQ, and it took me a year to say, "Oh, maybe I should put that after my credentials."
1: <laughs> I, mean, and, and I think a lot of it has to do that on a age of a profession. We're a baby yeah. profession, mm-hmm. you, you yeah. know. I always, t- I always tip my head off to nurses because they've been around forever. They, they're masters at developing their profession and setting up, you know, the the new uh, class of, of nurses that replace them on how to develop their profession. They're they're masters at it. We're just, we're in the infancy kind of stage as a profession.
0: Yeah, I think I think there maybe might even be able to be a, a list of some sort of, hey, look out for these things. It's not gonna be perfect, but um, to give to recruiters to say, this is how, but again, you still hit that level of, there's just not enough out there to yeah. fill these roles.
1: I, I think other than filling the number, I think in the immediate, certainly in the intermediate future, what we're going to find is a need to improve this match, of matching this clinician with their specific skills and experience to the need of this department. Um, And that could be, we need to fill a fellow role because we're going to train you, but we still need the right candidate, or we need an experienced. On the opposite side of the spectrum, we don't want to insult experienced well uh, skilled uh, providers like yourself and say, "Welcome to our team, Nicolot. We just believe in fast track, and that's <laughs> all. so we're just gonna put you there. Now, i I'm, I know plenty of senior-ish APPs that are that are happy to say, "Yeah, that's how I want to slow down my career, but I also know a bigger number who would feel like slighted or insulted that they're being underutilized. As we finish this episode, I'd like to hear from you, uh, is there a book or movie that you would recommend to our audience? It could be about anything. It could be EM-related, non-EM-related. Uh, I want yeah. folks to know, you know, what is it that, you know, excites or intrigues Nicolette?
0: This is going to make me sound really boring, Omar. They're going to be like, wow, <laughs> she's a stick in the mud. Um, so I was really fortunate through USAQ Hair Solutions to go through a dedicated year of um, what they're, what's called their Scholars Academy, which was leadership education. Like every, we met every week um, and, you know, every month kind of in person and went through several books. One of which has just literally time and time again come up um, is getting things done. And one of the life skills that has just been hugely impactful, especially on um, a, a working mom brain that doesn't always function as well as I'd love it to, is you know, the concept of kind of a mind dump um, and just not relying on my on my mind as much, um, but relying on skills and tasks that I've acquired. Um, So I I write everything down so that when I do have maybe a, a free 15, 20 minutes, I then go to that list and am able to just work through my list instead of spending five of those 15 minutes thinking about what I need to do. So getting things done, has been a book that has just been profoundly impactful on productivity within my life. And by way of that, I feel like I'm able to be a better clinician, a better mom, better wife, and just overall more successful. So.
1: I really appreciate that on two fronts. Uh, you may have experienced this as well uh, over the years. If I've had a, a PA student or a brand new grad and a common question is, what, what book should I get? yeah, you know, I have all these books and and it's sometimes you could get like a book fatigue. so they always want to hear from somebody what works. So I appreciate your response for that population. Mm-hmm. But also, I think you would agree, it doesn't matter where you are in your career. Uh, again, you could be mid range or on the senior end. We're constantly looking for uh, opportunities or ways to reinvent something or to do something better, re-energize or refocus. So I think there's a lot of a lot of folks with experience that would appreciate uh, what you said. And I hope that they're jotting that down and they could say, if that helps that woman and she seems like a pretty smart cat, she's got her stuff together, it might help me. And I I think this is what's important about dialogue. Is there a hero in your department that you would like to recognize? And it doesn't have to be all time forever. It could be somebody on your mind recently, the past week, month, but it just somebody in your department that you'd like to recognize. Say this person's a hero in, in the department.
0: Um, Brett Forehand is one of our attendings, um, and he's he's a silent like superstar, right? Very um, contemplative. He serves as actually one of the assistant directors to the EM residency, and is also my medical director for our postgrad program. So has to constantly have dialogue about that interaction. Between our EM residents and our postgrads, and that those workforce issues, and he does so with such grace, and is just by way of that grace and that positive energy and that contemplation, he's a huge advocate for PAS. And so I'm thankful for him and you know his support that he has of not just the program but the profession. And I don't think he quite even realizes what he's doing. (laughs) He's you know does it with such uh, with such humility.
1: That's great. Sounds like you all are lucky uh, to have him. How can folks reach you if they would like to reach you? Do you want them to or do you prefer not? Oh no.
0: i I would love if I'm always excited. i I've been blessed to find something in life. I, I love what I do. My dad always told me if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, and I couldn't be more fortunate to have found that. so, I am excited to talk about all of this stuff all the time. So if they want to reach me, email is best and it's N M O S I N S K I. I think I spelled that right. Oh boy. <laughs> At uh, ahn-emp.com. <laughs> I just had a
1: listeners, we, we have been listening to Nicolette Mazinski. We've been very fortunate to listen to what her experience and her, her skills have taught her uh different perspectives uh nicolette i can't thank you enough for uh participating in this and and helping us inform everybody all players about all things workforce relating to pas and nps i truly hope to have you back on as a guest i think that you have lots more. to
0: continue. Omar, thank you so much for this opportunity. And I would love to help out in any way that I can.
1: Okay, thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been the EMAPP Workforce Podcast.